Welcome to the Understory Bard Podcast, where I talk about entrepreneurship, self-producing your own creative projects, and writing as a service. Admission to the Understory is free, but understanding always has a price. Let's light the lantern. Well, hello there, creator. Welcome to the Understory Bard Podcast. My name is Wade Skalski, and the interview series continues with Sean Frank, the CEO of Ridge Wallet. Sean, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good, good. Well, you don't know this, but the reason why I'm a little bit, uh, I became aware of you is I actually ghost wrote like a, like a piece about you um, in a newsletter like three years ago. Right. And uh, that's how you kind of got on my radar. And I started to learn a little bit about you. And and then uh, and I have to admit, I am also a Ridge Wallet owner. So uh, I, I have to get that right out there. But the first thing I want to talk to you about is kind of how did you get to be in terms of uh, the CEO? Right. Like, how did that kind of that path at Ridge happen? Because I think you were there for very early on in the game. Yeah. Yeah. So I started working with Ridge as a client. Uh, I used to own an ad agency, just did Facebook ads, that type of stuff uh, in like 2016. So they were they were probably two or three years old. They were doing four or five million dollars a year in revenue and father, son, best friend. They didn't want to manage the other side of the business. They really just wanted to do product. They had, they had one employee at the time doing customer service, but they were like, we would love to outsource not only marketing, but ops and web dev and everything to you. And I was like 23. And I was like, yeah, of course we can do all that stuff. Like, and we're going to be great at it. Uh, we had to hire people and learn how to do it. And, you know, we worked together for, for probably two or three years and then we decided to merge. So I took an equity stake in the business. My co-founder and CMO Connor took an equity stake in the business. So now there's like about five of us that own the thing. Um, and you know, last year we did a couple hundred million dollars and never raised any money, just selling wallets on the internet. And I think, too, is one of the things that really exploded for you guys was when you were you really took on influencer branding. Right. So and I think you were kind of an early, adop- at least to me, at least you seem to be an early adopter on that kind of that strategy. Right. I mean, that was one of the it ended up being a lot of growth for you on the influencer side early. Yeah, we were we're definitely not early to influencer. We were early to YouTube and like mm-hmm. sponsoring YouTube creators. I think influencer started when like 2012 with the rise of Instagram and everyone had a very niche and narrow idea of what an influencer was. It was like in a very attractive couple posting, you know, fit tummy tea shakes or whatever. That's like what in, like Instagram influencer, influencer general really encompassed. And we were different because we were uh, a more mainstream product. Like it's really just for everybody. And our core audience is like, especially at the time was just like young men gamers on YouTube, basically, then nobody wanted to sponsor them. This was before gambling apps were a thing. This was before crypto was a thing. Uh, this was before, you know, uh, Shark VPN and all these other sponsors. So we were just very early. We were one of the few people directly working with YouTube creators. And that was a big driver of our success in 2018, 2019, and 2020. We had to pull back in 2021 because like just the rise of, you know, uh, 
FTX and crypto.com, like they, they pumped a lot of artificial money into the ecosystem. So we would used to pay, you know, five or $10 for a CPM on YouTube. They took it all the way to 500 or a thousand dollars. And like, it just didn't make any sense for anybody. Now we know they were using stolen funds. So it kind of explains why they were able to pay so much. Uh, but then, yeah, when, when that kind of fell apart in 2022 and 2023, we've, we've re-entered the YouTube space pretty aggressively. You know, one thing I think about, I kind of liken it to the 70s music scene, right? When you guys started was that it was, you had, you know, there was a, there was a pretty big barrier to entry in terms of, um, you know, YouTube success. There wasn't that many people. Um, and so you could get pretty favorable terms, but you treated your people really fair. Like that is the one thing I, I think that but to me, at least as an outsider is what it seemed to me is the deals that you were making, they weren't onerous, they weren't, you know, adhesion contracts. And so you, you try to do a more long-term relationship on the influencer side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just try to, you know, a lot of times people would like try to just like own pieces of the creator. Like that's like, the, like this was when we started sponsoring people, it was like right around the time MCNs, which is like a multi-channel network on YouTube was like kind of blowing up and then kind of falling apart, like kind of that rise and fall period. And everyone was trying to treat YouTubers like music artists or whatever and get like 360 deals and and really screw them over when to be a youtuber or creator you don't need any of the the infrastructure that like a record label would provide right like it's very much the best youtube creators are doing it themselves in their house like and like i don't and you know maybe they need help with ad sales or whatever but we were super easy to work with it's like we're just going to pay you just like how youtube pays you you get views we will give you a set amount of money for those views and we don't care what you say we don't care what type of videos it is just like talk about the wallet semi positively and and i think a lot of creators really like that and i think we have a good reputation in the community yeah, no, and that's why I was attracted to the brand. I think, do you think because that you didn't have to take VC money that you could be a little bit more kind of like loose with your content for, you know, in terms of who you were, uh, you know, who you were partnering with on the influencer side, like you said, just like, we don't really care what you say, just talk about the wallets in a positive way. Um, you know, because you guys are pretty, you're not small, but your management team is not huge, right? It's not like you're like VC backed and you've got to, you know, answer to all these people. Do you think that helped give you a lot more freedom during that time? Yeah, we never sold uh, like this idea of like a brand vision or voice to a VC. And then we never had to defend that because we didn't sell it. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're like a way or house that like alcohol brand or all birds are like, this is who we are and what we stand for. And like, this is the way we speak. And so because of that, you have like 10 people wanting to touch a product to project to make sure it's on brand before it goes out there in the world. We were just trying to sell wallets. Like, like I think you know, going back to the first principles of it, like you do all of these like brand exercises to like make sure you're for somebody and not for somebody else because you think it's going to help you sell more of that thing, right? Like mm-hmm. you're like you're, you're you're painting it for a certain audience when if you strip all that away, we just want to make sure people buy our thing and then like our thing. And like that is like fundamentally what you are as a as a as a merchant of physical goods. Like you just gotta find people who who are gonna want it. So by stripping all that brand stuff away, it made it less complicated um, and less cumbersome to do deals. And well, yeah. It, the more, yeah, I mean, the most, the more friction that you can remove, obviously the faster, the faster things are gonna, the more units are gonna move. But I, I think one reason why I'm attracted to the brand is because I come from the creative side, right? So I'm a writer, I believe in self-producing or creative projects. Um, but the big problem, 
and that you alluded to is that creative people don't have any idea about business at all, right? And so they're in this position where they can create content, they can partner with you um, or other brands, but they don't really know how to navigate those uh, those two worlds. And I think one thing that I think that you guys did that was really cool was like you said, is like, you just treated them fairly. Like you're like, we're just going to treat you normally, just do this from a business perspective. And I think those people really thrived in that environment. I mean, is, is the creative side, like, how do you view the creative side? Because you are just selling wallets, right? But you do, there are so many chances that you guys take, at least from what I see from the outside. Yeah, we didn't really think about brand at all until like 2021. We, we, that's when we ended up hiring like, people who actually like know about brand and know creativity and that type of stuff. Um, our first hire was a VP of brand. This guy, Kevin, he comes from like the outdoor space mm-hmm. and it has been challenging to like get more of the brand in line with, with whatever that creative vision is. Uh, yeah. But I think, I think your question is like, how do we view it? <laughs> and, right. Uh, you know, we try to be a really big tent company. Uh, I think, you know, I think we're gonna talk about Yeti later on in this and like Yeti's a great brand. They've had a harder time becoming more big tent. Like they were very much in the outdoor space and they're like the ultimate brand in the outdoor space. But like, as they try to get into more of a mainstream consumer, they missed the Stanley trend because like they didn't have that mainstream consumer on lock. Right. Um, and now you don't want to be trait like just chasing trends. Cause then you end up just being a, you know, a fast fashion company or whatever else, but we try to be really big tent. Um, and you know, I think that's why we, we couldn't raise VC dollars. No one was going to give us money in 2010, 2012, 2015, 2018. No one would have given us money. Cause it would have been like, you're just a wallet company. Like, who are you for now? The flip side of that is Allbirds is losing a hundred million dollars a year, and you know our, our net profits in the eight figures. So we right. definitely came out on top of that whole thing, just going to like the first principles of the business. Uh, but you know, brand is just a tool used to try to increase sales, right? And I think there was there that's that was a a little known fact in the 2010 era is that like all brand is is one of your many tools, just like Facebook ads, just like product, just like merchandising, just like product channel. Brand is just another one of those tools. It's not better than those tools. It's not worse than those tools. It's just another one of those tools. But people like put everything into that one tool and left them, you know, struggling in the other aspects. Well, and I think the, I, I think one th- advantage that you guys have is that you just did one product and then you, you know, you got, you crushed it, but now there's, there's still a huge category for you of luxury goods, right? So you're, you're going out into, um, luggage, right? You're going out into watches. And so those are still on quote on brand because of, you know, it's men's accessories basically, but, um, you have this built in customer base. And so I, I think doing it the way that you guys did it, you're just like, we're just going to focus on selling the wallets and not trying to expand too quickly into other areas was a big advantage for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like in, in retrospect, it could be genius or we just didn't know the fuck what we were doing. And like, it's, it's much, much the latter. We did not know what we were doing. I wish we would have gotten another new product sooner, but it just took forever to figure out what type of company we are, what, what products our, comp- our customers want. And we really turned a corner in 2022 when we launched Rings. Like that is now a, 
you know, the first year was an eight-figure line of business for us. And it's like, okay, that's what customers want. And now we just launched luggage and that's going to be an eight-figure line of business in the first 12 months. It's like, okay, that's, we now know what we are. Like we, we, we are building out the suite of luxury goods, the suite of accessory goods, the travel goods. And yeah. And like, luckily we have a big enough customer base that they really respond well to that now. So I'm super stoked to, to scale that up. Well, but I think part of those, I think comes from the first product itself, because the, the idea of the wallet, right? The Ridge wallet is like, it just has a really high utility for a man. You, know, you don't have this wallet that's this thick, you know, you, it's just, you just put just what you need in it. You can customize a little bit, um, you know, and then that sort of that ethos is transferred to your other stuff, right? Because it has to kind of match. And so, um, and I think that is an advantage that you guys have because your first product was so good. Uh, and, and it set the sort of set the table for the rest of the products that are still in that ethos. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there is the, the common theme through all of it is materials, which we have to like material stories through our product. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that's where you, you could find carbon across everything we do. You could find titanium across everything we do. And so think, think of whatever accessory in your life, can we put metal or carbon on it? That's what we're going to try to make. Yeah. Well, and you have the institutional knowledge, right? So that's the advantage of being a category king in, in, on the wallet side is that you're like, we have all this data, we have all this manufacturing data, we know how to do this. Let's just now take that knowledge and try to do it in watches or rings or whatever. And it's very hard for people to, com to come in and compete with that. Yeah. Because it's a moat, right? Because you have all the knowledge from the you know years that you did in the wallet business with the carbon and everything. Yeah, when we see that when competitors try to copy something we've done and we're like, dude, that didn't work. You shouldn't copy that. <laughs> but, right. Yeah, but, you've paid those prices already. Yeah, yeah. So now, and I, I want to go back to the creative side because for you as a CEO, you're not a traditional CEO, right? That's why I sort of wanted to talk to you because you're on Twitter. You kind of do whatever you want. Half the time you're shit posting, right? Like, at least I view it as a shit post, right? Like, and you get to, you get to, I feel like you get to be you, um, and not a lot of CEOs get to do that. Is that just because you come from more of a family type beginning in the business? Or it's, it's a smaller business that blew up or, or they're just like, just do your thing. Or why are you allowed to, like, why do you get to do that? Cause you're an owner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's a good question. I often say that like, uh, people ask me if I want to take Ridge public. I'm like, I can't take Ridge public. Like, mm. I don't know if you've ever been on earnings calls, but like, you got to read a script. You can't say what you really want. And like, you have to just continue to, to, to tow the company line. Um, I'm just not good in those situations. Uh, what, why am I able to shit post? I think that's a good question. Look, we, we have a very tight ownership group. We've never sold equity. So it's just, there's five of us and we're all very good friends. We've built this business together over the past. I mean, I've been involved in it for eight years, I think, <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm not even 30 yet. So mo most of my life I've been involved in this business basically. Uh, and, the, you know, I've been able to deliver great growth and returns for the ownership group. And we kind of treat Ridge as a family office, right? Like all of my net worth is tied in there. All of my best friend's net worth is tied up in there. All of my other friend's net worth and my brother works at the company. Like it's it's a, it's a family business through and through. So uh, I think they trust that I'm not going to do things to hurt the business. And Dude, the Twitter has just been nothing but beneficial. I mean, uh, we've, we have a big announcement coming up in like two weeks and that's just directly because of my connections I made on Twitter and you'll, you'll see it and I'll tweet about it. It'll be pretty sick. 
Well, it's the thing about Twitter, what's shocking about it is, is you really do get access to a lot of different people. So, you know, when I used to do ghostwriting for different newsletters or whatever, every single, it doesn't matter if you were a founder or if you were doing venture capital or tech or whatever, everyone would always be like, you can find me on Twitter and you can literally connect with anyone on Twitter. I mean, it's incredible. And especially once you start to get a little bit of a following, people will pay attention when you DM them or you you tag them or whatever. Um, and I think it's a people it's a very underutilized vertical. Like, I don't think people get it. Yeah. So there's this idea that social media has gone away and it's been replaced by entertainment media, like user generated entertainment media. Mm -hmm. And like, that's what TikTok is. Right. And that's what Instagram is. Like, how often do you see your friends posting on Instagram? It's like, like the feed is dead, right? It is just brands. It is just influencers. It is just art projects. And like maybe stories is still a little bit of social media, but that's also been flooded up with brands and influencers or whatever else. Uh, Twitter can still be a social network where you can interact with people who are your peers or people you've met or whatever. And the other thing is if you want to grow on a platform, it is still a platform you can grow on, uh, you know, unlike Instagram, like try to try to grow your Instagram followers from a thousand to 10,000, like maybe with reels, like you can kind of start doing that again. Uh, with like TikTok, that I think that window is basically closed unless you just want to be a shill for their TikTok shop, right? Like it's very hard to actually grow influencer reach on those platforms now. But Twitter, I mean, you can just start being an expert and talking about something. And it's very good at finding people who are interested in that topic. And like you said, like there's two ends of the Twitter spectrum to either the smartest people on earth use it or like the dumbest people on earth, right? Like it'll be porno accounts or it'll be like <laughs> Mark Andreessen. It's like, there's, there's two different ends of that, of the spectrum. Uh, but yeah, look, it's the best place to meet people who do the thing you're interested in. 100%. Well, and also too, is I think, you can monetize there earlier, earlier than anywhere else, because you don't have to have a huge, especially for someone like me, who I have a writing as a service business. Right. So for me, it's like I, I can if I can get to you, then we can talk. I can monetize it. Right? I don't have to have it's not an audience. It's like it's not an audience based monetization. It's a connections based. Right. I make the connection and I, I can make it to do writing as a service. Right. So from that perspective, I think people can monetize a lot earlier on Twitter than than other platforms that are more sort of audience based. Yeah, I mean, for sure. The also thing is like, you're not going to be able to build a very valuable B2B sales audience on TikTok. It's just like right. now people spend time or energy. Same thing on LinkedIn, but like there's decision makers on Twitter, right? There's CEOs and there's, mm -hmm. there's small business owners. So it's easier to reach people. You can have a smaller group of people with the same buying power as a very large group of people. Yeah, 100%. And also too, I think... Um, you, you'd be like, I'm shocked. Uh, people will reach out to me with very small followings that are huge in real life. Right. So like they don't have a hundred thousand people. They might have a hundred people, but they're, you know, they're like the CEO of a company or whatever. So, um, I don't know. Probably not great to talk about my thoughts on Twitter. Let me ask you this. Let me ask this question. Um, were you a creative person ever before business in terms of yeah. like in music or writing or anything or like business, like being an entrepreneur is your creativity basically. Yeah. Cannot sing or dance or do anything creative. I can't, I can barely write. If you check out like the way I tweet, it's barely strung together. Uh, I like to think about the world mostly in a business sense. And that's, that's what's exciting or interesting to me is like, 
the economics of a business or a deal or whatever else. And I, I wish I had the other creative skills. My brother, amazing musician, fucking plays guitar, produces music, does the whole thing. Can't, can't do it at all. Totally missed me. Well, the reason why I asked that though, is because, I mean, Ridge makes a lot of creative moves. And even when you guys early and I mean, you're still early cause you're a pretty young business, but, um, you, you have a creative bent to the business. So I can't remember what the artist's name was, but you have these series where you'll have artists design the wallets and stuff like that. And so your straight business person kind of scoffs at that kind of thing, right? Like, but you guys do have a creative bent to your business. Yeah, yeah. So like we have an artist series where we've done stuff with YouTubers. We've done stuff with tattoo artists. Um, yeah, you know, those, those ideas come from a business first mindset, like not to spill the secret sauce, but we sponsor a ton of YouTubers and then like the next level after sponsoring them is deeper integrations. So I'm like, we need to go deeper with these creators because it's one of those things where like, you know, if you, if you ever listen to like this American life, like the very old episodes, like mm -hmm. there's just, there's MailChimp ads. Right. And like, you just skip over it. Like it's an intro. Cause it's like, you've heard it fucking 5,000 times. Right. And like, mm -hmm. like as someone in advertising, you have to recognize that like, yep, that is repetitive. That is bad. So like, you know, if we've sponsored Linus tech tips, we've honestly probably sponsored 200 Linus Tech Tip videos. And like at a certain point, his audience does not want to hear about us anymore. So to make it more impactful, it needs to be a little bit deeper, right? Or like, we don't want to stop sponsoring Linus Tech Tips. We love that channel. We love what they do. We think it's fantastic. So the next deeper level integration is, is a, is a custom product that like we sell to our audience, they sell their audience. It's just like, it's, it's, it's a tighter relationship. So that's where that comes from. But it's, I mean, but, I, that is, uh, to me and my observations, that is a minority view in your world, right? Because I'm not in your world, I'm in the creative world, but I, I help creative people get more into the business world, right? That comes from my legal background or whatever. So so my experience is, is that most people, when that happens, they just move off and go to somewhere else. They don't, they're not into the deeper integration part. They're like, nope, we're gonna, now we're going to go look for somebody, you know, the next big shiny thing, the next big influencer, and we're going to move away. So that is, a, that is a discovery creative mindset. And that's why I was curious if you'd ever done anything creatively, because that's, that takes, that takes um, courage to do that, really. I mean, maybe you don't think it does, but that's a, I look at that, that's a minority view in business for the most part. Maybe that's why you guys are successful, right? Yeah, well, the most creative thing I've ever done is my memes. So if you ever want to check out my memes, those are probably the best, the 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 my best piece of creativity. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about and and it, you're you're staying on this about being the next Yeti, right? Like you were you were talking about that three, two three years ago at least, right? Um, or that then maybe not being the next Yeti, but like how why was it that Yeti was that company that influenced you when you were thinking about it? Is that am I off base with that that question or? No, dude, I've been saying it for years. Yeah. Uh, everyone in our space looked up to the same D2C darlings of Away, Allbirds, Everlane, like all of these companies, and they just totally ignored Yeti as a brand. And I watched the rise of Yeti from like 2018 when they went public up until now. I'm like, hey, they're the only profitable, growing, large business. I mean, Yeti will do like 1.5 billion in sales next year, right? Yeah. And it's the only success story from our D2C cohort. Now, now there's a new one in on running and on running is crushing it. They're worth like $9 billion. So maybe on is a better example, right? But like, you know, domestic heartland business in Yeti, nobody 
in San Francisco or New York thought they were cool. <laughs> it's like, like everyone was talking about the same like cohort of like five to 10 brands that have now proven to all be fucking worthless, right? Casper is another great example. Like you'd, you'd go to events and Casper would be speaking right about like how they're so smart and how they're so they're like, they're amazing. They were bankrupt. <laughs> they were, they were, they were basically, they were taken private. They're closing all their stores and it's not that they were too early. It's just, they were worse. And like, I don't know why they like, if this is the disconnect between like popular media and like the real world, it's like, no, they're just worse. And not to throw shade. I'm sure people worked really hard there. Right. But like, they're not, there's better brands. Right. And, and, and Yeti's one that, you know, can end up being this behemoth of a company with amazing free cash flow that dominates two different separate categories and they have their problems. Uh, and I'm like Yeti just had like, they had a big recall growth slowing. They just bought a brand cause like they couldn't do bags. Right. So they just had to buy something. But if there's anybody to look up to as a young brand owner, it is better to look up to the Yetis of the world than about anybody else. So that's why the, the Yeti thing came up. Well, and their positioning is so crazy because, so I grew up in North Dakota. So my cousins who deer hunt in North Dakota, they're like, they're going to buy a Yeti, right? And they're just whatever. But then also I live in Virginia Beach. And so when I, you know, we have friends that are Navy SEALs or whatever, and we go to their parties and they all have Yetis, right? So like there's two very disparate kind of groups, but somehow it's like Yeti just is, is it can be a lot of things to a lot of different people, but yet still just be a cooler, right? It's, it's, it's fascinating how they did that. Yeah. Yeah. And they made a great product that was, that was superior to everything in their class. And the the other thing is like, people don't really know about this, but like their cooler business is, you know, less than a third of their overall revenue. They're mostly a cup company. They're a drinkware company because you build this big flagship overbuilt product that is too expensive for the average consumer. And then you sell them micro doses of that same brand experience with the, the cups, the coolers, whatever else. And what really fell apart is that this is the challenge of being a public company is uh, you have to hit earnings per share. You have to hit the growth numbers, right? So like they can't invest in the next generation of products the same way. Like they have this amazing cup business with high velocity, with very low inventory, with good margins. And they try to get into bags and it wasn't good. <laughs> like right. it's, it's hard to build up a bag business. And they've, they went through that experience. They realized that. And that's why they just bought mystery ranch. And now they're, what they're able to do is they can yetify mystery ranch and get them up to speed with their wholesalers and best in class C2C and merchandising, but still have a good high margin business off the rip. So um, the future of, of Yeti is looking more like a VF Corp and, uh, that's good. I'm excited for him. Yeah. Well, and it's a, you know, I think there's enough room for everybody, right? Because I, over time, I just, very few people can sustain it. Very few companies can sustain over time what got them to where they are. You know what I mean? In terms of the growing cycle from small to medium and from medium to large are totally different skill sets, totally different, um, rabbit holes to go down. And I think it's hard to maintain that success over time. Like, are you worried at all about expanding into these other markets that you're going to kind of go down a rabbit hole or get lost? Or do you, are you concerned about that at all? Or you're like, oh, no, we're fine. Cause we'll always have the wall of business. Or what are your thoughts on that? Is it just like, it's going to work? Yeah. So you said it takes different people to do different sizes of the business. And the way I break this down is, 
there's zero to one entrepreneurs, there's one to 10 entrepreneurs, there's 10 to 100 entrepreneurs, and then there's 100 to 101 to 102 to 103. Like it is starting something, scaling something, you know, hyperscaling something, and then optimizing something. Like those are the four different buckets. And everybody's at least one of those things. So if you're not an entrepreneur and you listen to this, you're, you can do at least one of those things well. Some people can do two of those things really well. Really great people can do three of those things well. Almost nobody can do all four of those things, right? Like, I mean, we're, like if you're able to do all four of those things, you are really the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Steve Jobs, like the, the once in a generation entrepreneurs. Uh, and I'm not. I'm not one of those guys. <laughs> like I am, I am really good at one to 10 and 10 to a hundred. I am really bad at starting something brand new and I'm really bad at the optimization piece. It's why I can never be the CEO of a public company and it's why I didn't start rich. So I'm good in that, like that, the middle sector. So your question was, am I scared about like this next level of growth? No, this is exactly what I'm good at. Like taking Ridge from 3 million to, you know, now we have days we do $3 million. Like it's just, this is, this is what I'm really good at. What scares me is when you reach a point where, you know, the growth slows or I can't think of these new growth initiatives and it just becomes like a caretaking operation and like going in there and like actually building optimized systems and cutting fat and whatever else. And that's what I'm not good at. And that's when I'd I'd quit or hire somebody else and, and sell the business. Like this next phase of like launching new product categories, getting them into new markets, you know, building out new channels, like finding ways to get underpriced attention. This is, this is like you know, this is Michael Phelps in water. This is, this is what I'm good at. Right. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited for the next couple of years. Well, I, I mean, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they, they, the big mistake they'll make is they think that topical intelligence in one area gives them intelligence in everything. Right. And so, like you said, if like you experience success from zero to one or one to 10, you're like, Oh, I can handle this 10 to hundred, no problem. Right. And I think that's what burns a lot of entrepreneurs. And that's why, you know, know thyself is not a platitude it's a business strategy. And did you, is that something that you just knew about yourself just kind of intuitively or how did you figure that out? Like how, how you're like, this is what I'm good at and I know that I'm good at this and I'm, I suck at these things where there was, is it, did you just know it or how did you discover that? You just, you just learn it throughout life. Like I can't go to the DMV. Like mm-hmm. I, I will come up with immense strategies to not go to the DMV. Like I have, I still have a driver's license from Washington state. I haven't lived in Washington state in like fucking, I moved out when I was 18. Right. So my license has expired three or four times since then. So I've like gotten PO boxes there and then told Washington I lived there and then like made them mail and then had somebody mail back to me, like all of these intense things that take way more effort just because I cannot figure out how to go to the DMV or pay parking tickets. Like I just, I'm like, yeah, I'm just never going to pay. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I just can't figure out how to do it. And, uh, yeah, like I'm mentally deficient at just certain parts of it. Like I just, and like you call it laziest or whatever else. Like my wife helps me with a lot of that type of stuff. It's just, I can't figure it out. And my frustration level reaches like, you know, levels of anger I just can't, you know, put up with. But what I'm really good at is running small to medium-sized e-commerce businesses and figuring out how to make them work. So it is, it is just the skills required to be a zero to one founder or an optimization founder. Like, I think those are very much like going to the DMV. Like you have to build a system for the first time. And I've just, I can't figure it out. So that's the, I my whole life has been like that, man. 
You sound you sound like the typical creative person though, because what you just described is every, every not every single creative person, but like a lot of creative people fall into that bucket. Are you sure you're not like a secret closet creative person? You know, you're like a doing haikus or something in the morning or something. I don't know, but I mean, like you would know better than me about about like if that's if that's a creative mindset. And what I would tell a lot of creative people is they should probably try to be ten to a hundred CEOs of businesses. Like they should just try to focus on scaling or hyperscaling a business because they're probably going to be super good at it. Like those skills translate over. It's just it, it is, I guess, creative thinking about like what what do I need to do to get this business to 5X in revenue over five years, right? And I mean, I guess that is creative skill. So creative people should not think business isn't for them. They should just find the right size of business. You're preaching to the choir on this because we talked about it uh, you know, earlier in the podcast where creative people get taken advantage of a lot by the business types because creative people don't understand the value that they bring. They don't understand how to um, monetize it properly and they don't understand how to uh, enter into contracts. Right. So they always get these weird adhesion contracts where they get, you know, not, not all of them, but um, I think learning business as a creative person can be very enjoyable. If, like you said, if you just focus on the right types of business, so you're preaching to the choir on that, I think as people, something that people should definitely do. Um, if you were to ever sell your equity stake in Ridge, like, so it sounds like you would never go to say like, I'm going to go, go to zero from one and I'm going to make, you know, Sean's barbecue sauce or something, right? Like it sounds like you would look for something to acquire rather than build. That's kind of what your, what your approach would be. Yeah. I got like 20 ideas of random shit that I'd want to do. Uh, and with enough money, if I sell Ridge for enough money, I'm sure I can buy my way to someone to do zero to one stuff for me, like mm-hmm. a chief of staff or a COO who could figure all that shit out. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, yeah, the most common thing is like, you just become a private equity guy and you just buy businesses and make them better. So maybe I'll do that. Does that appeal to you? Is that, I, 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 I'm telling you, I feel like I have to convince you you're a creative person. I want you to start writing some poetry or something, dude. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe a haiku. Maybe you got to do some Pollock painting. I don't know. Cause it's, I don't, would, that doesn't strike me as something that you would do just like, I don't know you at all, but I, because I just, I, I'm almost positive you're a creative person. You're just, you just haven't admitted it to yourself yet. Yeah, yeah, we, we'll we'll see. Maybe maybe I have a whole second life. I'm gonna go out there and like, what did you say? Write poetry? Yeah, I think it was... not poetry. A haiku, my man. Just just get those syllables down. Okay, yeah, I'll 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 work on that. Uh... So let's go. Let's kind of we've been kind of macro. Let's go a little bit. Let's go a little bit a micro on it. So if you were to give a state of the union about what's the state of the union of your industry right now, not just Ridge, but just in general. And if you were going to tell someone who's starting out, um, you know, maybe in that, not maybe that zero to one, maybe that one to 10, you know, an early business, you know, what is the state of the union right now of the, of, of your industry? Uh, it, it, there was there was a sense of high in 2021 that came crashing down in 2022. I think it stayed down in 2023. I think it's still low, but it's on the upswing in 2024. So, uh, you know, we're, as we were quoting this, we're on, we're on the precipice of, of positivity being injected back into the, the industry outdoor in general. Is, has had about two years of recessions. And it, like the CEO of REI has said that he's about four quarters or eight quarters into like declining sales. I don't know how outdoor gets out of this. I think 
I think there's a good chance REI does go bankrupt. And like, mm-hmm. that's something people don't like talk about. Uh, it, why is outdoor specifically so hard is, is, um, demand is at an all time low. So like, you know, COVID everyone bought everything they were going to buy. And now like the world's returning to normal. So like production ramped up, inventory ramped up, everything ramped up. And there was just been this inventory glut that like they still haven't worked through and with declining sales, with a world that's continuing to digitalize. Like people talk about like, you know, going outside, hiking, whatever else. It's like, yeah, that's still at an all time low, right? Like, like it is, it is declining. People put an Apple Vision Pros and just hanging out watching Netflix. So outdoors in the hardest place ever, but my industry is really e-com and people buying stuff on the internet and that is continuing to slowly rise up. Right. So, um, you know, there was a really hard, and this is like, you know, I say really hard buying behavior was the lowest it was in 2022. So consumer sentiment was the lowest it was in 2022. That's, that's when like the money supply started to shrink. There was inflation. There's a war in Ukraine. That's all been really fixed. 2023 was a great year for us. 2024 looks awesome as well. So, Customers are feeling good. The industry is, and this is kind of like how the economy works. Like it's Main Street versus Wall Street. So Main Street e-commerce feels really good right now. Uh, Wall Street e-commerce still feels pretty bad, and probably has another year before it starts to be at the same pace as Main Street e-commerce. I mean, I I feel like people are trying to move away from the VC model. I don't know if that is, that, is that something you agree with or you don't think so? Like yeah, it, you, it, are, we're, we're not a business that VC dollars make sense in. It's like, you cannot, <laughs> people, okay. Like people always talk about how like VCs, it's like, yeah, you know, you just need one company to pay off. Like you just need those apples, those Googles, those Facebooks. And they say that, but then they also try to invest in a shoe company. And it's like, okay, let's let's say Allbirds ends up being the next Nike. Nike's only worth $150 billion. So Uber is bigger or is as big as Nike is, right? And it took Nike 55 fucking years to get as big as they are. It took Uber 10, right? So it's like, we're not, it's different. Like, tech survives on a winner take all model where like you really need to be going for monopolies in an industry like uber is totally destroyed lyft i think they'll beat doordash they beat a million other people trying to do what they were going to do but customers want choice and they want hundreds of shoe options right and you can have hokas and nikes and you know 50 other brands you've never heard of doing basically the same thing and like you just prefer it because that's how customer choice works right like Fashion as an industry will never have monopolistic outcomes, right? And it's the reason why the best fashion companies, LVMH or Curing, they own 50 brands and they cycle one in or out of the spotlight. It's just like the only way it works is like this this hold this hold co-approach. So VC dollars will never come back or they should never come back in our industry because they do not work. Like if there's a fashion element to your business, if there's customer choice in your business, it'll it'll never ever make sense to have a, a monopolistic investment like VC. Well, I, mean, I think I read a stat where Uber, I think Uber is 80% and then everyone and everyone else is the, the you know, Lyft is getting for market share. Lyft is like getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And all Lyft does is make Uber look better no matter what they do, basically. 
Yeah. And it, it's, it's, this happened in search. It happens in social media. It happens in fucking everything. Like, like those are called like network effect businesses, right? Like where there needs to be like one systematic winner because it makes everyone's life better. Right. Like you go to Google cause it's the best thing and it's free. It's like, how, how are you going to compete with a business model that like it is better and free and they get to these massive, massive scales. Same thing with Amazon. It's like, it is just a better, it's a better user experience. So it ends up winning and ends up becoming a monopoly because of it. And if someone told you, yeah, I'm going to build another Amazon, you'd be like, well, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that a bad idea. They've already built it. Well, and, well, and also the data too, right? So they get so far ahead with the data that you, just like you guys in carbon, right? So if I was to say, oh, I'm going to make a carbon wallet. Well, I have to go through the 50 different mistakes that you guys made to be able to, to so I have to survive those while competing with you at the same time, right? So you already have all that data. Yeah. And I'm sure, well, I always tell people if they want to sell wallets, good fucking luck. And I'm sure that's what Jeff Bezos would say if you said, hey, I'm going to build another Amazon. He'd be like, dude, go try, man. It's hard as fuck. You don't want to do that. Right. Like, I always tell people, I'm like, yeah, you can try to sell wallets. Nobody wants wallets. Like Ridge was able to build this, 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 like our moat is that nobody wants to buy wallets. It's like we're able to convince and trick people that they actually want it when like the average person never buys a wallet. <laughs> it's like, right. it's like one in 10 years or they get it for free or it's gifted to them or something like that. It's like, it's a horrible buying flow and pattern. So like we're able to build a business in a place nobody else wanted to be in. Right. And I'm sure Jeff Bezos would be like, yeah, you want to try to build 50,000 warehouses in every city in America and deliver stuff in one hour. It's like, yeah, dude, good luck. Like I, it's, I'm not trying to like his business is obviously way harder. That business is way harder to build, but like, there's a reason why people shouldn't try to take on Amazon or, or try to build a Ridge wallet. No, I, I get it. I, I, uh, I write for a holster company and you would think that you would, you would be able to, I mean, we move a lot of holsters, but it's, it's, a uh, it's an inter, it's like negative strip lining. It's almost like you said, like trying to trick people. Like you need another holster. No, you don't you need one holster. You, you have a holster, you have it, right. You don't need another holster, right. Unless you get another gun. So, um, well, we only have a couple minutes left. I want to be respectful of your time. So, uh, if someone was, where do you see a good places to start right now? So look, let's say there's someone who wants to get into e-com, um, you know, physical products, obviously not wallets. Uh, where do you think is a good place to start right now for physical products or just e-com in general for someone who's like, okay, I'm whatever, 2025, 20, I want to get going on this. Let's, let's rock and roll. Like yeah. Uh, I, I don't think physical products are the first place you should start. I think what you should do is you should work at an agency. You should learn what they do. You should build a, a strong service backbone. And then you should start a service business. <laughs> and then you should, I mean, this is exactly what I did. Work at an agency, start an agency, find clients that are crushing it, acquire percentage of their business. That is, that is the playbook I think you should do. And I love that playbook. That's what I'm doing. So that's my writing as a service business. So great. I, I actually love to hear that. So that's good. Yeah. And why, why do it? That is because maybe it's not, 
would I own more money if I owned all of Ridge Wallet? Yes, I would be I would be wealthier. But my the success of building a Ridge Wallet is is one in a thousand, right? One in ten thousand. It's super fucking rare. And the, here's the proof is in the pudding. We just launched on Kickstarter in 2013. There was a million brands doing that. We're the one of five to survive until today, right? Like we're one of like the 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 few that actually made it to this point. So. Starting a Ridge Wallet is a one in 10,000 chance or whatever, but you can get a job at an agency, you can learn skills, you can build an agency. That is 100% guaranteed success. All three of those things can happen. And then when you're at the agency, you will have clients. Some will do really well, some will do really bad. Find the ones to do well and then attach yourself to them. That is a 90% chance of success rate. And it's like, just do that. And I went from being totally fucking broke like when I moved to LA, I lived in a flop house and it was like 16 guys in four bedrooms and I paid 500 bucks for a bunk bed. And now I'm a millionaire and I would recommend people if they want that same path to do exactly that, get a job at an agency, start an agency, pick your best clients, try to get equity stake in them. That is the, that is the clear path. So do that. I, I approve that message, man. I think that's a great, I think it's simple. It's uh, it's, it's not a lot of friction there in terms of figuring it out. So uh, listen, man, I know we're out of time. I really appreciate you coming on. How do people find you? I know tell everybody where you're at on Twitter. I'll have it in the show notes and uh, anything else you want to leave us with before we take off. No, thank you for having me. It's Shawnee. Come on Twitter. I have a podcast called the operators with a bunch of other e-com guys. So if you want to talk about e-com, and you don't take my advice and don't start an agency business and you start a fucking econ brand. We talk about that sometimes. So thank you. Awesome. Well, I'll put uh, your Twitter, Twitter bio in the, in the, in there, I'll put the podcast in there and then uh, also put something to Ridge as well. So thank you so much for coming on, Sean. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Congratulations. You made it out of the understory alive. If you'd like to get more content from me where I discuss entrepreneurship, self-producing your own creative projects, and writing as a service, you can subscribe to my daily email list at understoryemails.com. Again, that is understoryemails.com.